0: that means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
1: I'm Eliza Barkley, Vox's science, health, and climate editor. This April, our podcasts are teaming up to cover some of the most important issues threatening life on Earth. From sustainability, to biodiversity, to straight up cool things about the natural world, we'll focus on our planet, and its limits in episodes throughout the month. Tune in to Today Explained, Vox Conversations, The Weeds, Unexplainable, Worldly, Future Perfect, and Vox Quick Hits. Want to listen to all the shows? Find them at vox.com slash Earth
0: Hey, this is Sean Ealing, regular host of Vox Conversations. As you might know, Vox.com is doing a whole spate of programming related to Earth Month. Today on the show is my former and now occasional Vox colleague, David Roberts. He's the author of The Volts newsletter on clean energy and policy, and he's taking on the Earth Month mission in a big way. Here's the basic setup. Our climate is changing. It's an emergency. We're running out of time to fix things, so we are going to have to change the way we live. But what does that mean exactly? What do we do? In this episode, David talks with Jessica Transic, an MIT professor and climate researcher, about just that: what should we do when we want to do things differently? Here's David.
2: It can sometimes seem like the climate change crisis is all about sacrifice. What we need to stop doing, shut down, or restrain. And the only way to express concern about climate change is personal asceticism or grassroots activism, stopping yourself from doing stuff or stopping other people from doing stuff. But if you turn your head just slightly, there's another way to look at the challenge of climate change. If we're going to stop heating our buildings with fossil fuels, then we have to develop carbon-free ways of heating them. If we're going to stop getting around in gasoline and diesel-fueled cars and trucks, then we have to develop carbon-free ways of getting around. For everything we stop doing, we'll need to start doing something else. For everything we give up, we'll need to invent something to substitute for it. For everything we tear down, we'll need to construct something in its place. In other words, Climate change is, above all, a challenge to human ingenuity. We need to dream up, develop, and scale a set of new technologies to serve as the basis for human industrial society, and do it quickly, by the middle of the century, according to scientists. That's only 30 years away, and you may notice getting closer by the day. How can we develop and spread these new technologies more rapidly and deliberately? My guest today has spent her career studying just that. Jessica Transic is an associate professor at MIT's Institute for Data Systems and Society, where she runs a lab, the Transick Lab, that studies clean energy technology innovation. She and her team dig into the details of what it takes to push cleaner technologies from the lab all the way up to mass market scale. It turns out we understand quite a bit about the process and how to accelerate it, so I'm excited to dig in. Jessica, welcome and thanks for being here.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, David. It's great to uh, have the opportunity to talk to you.
2: So Jessica, you have run your lab at MIT for about 10 years now. How did you end up there and What drew you to studying uh, technology innovation?
1: Yeah, so I guess it was a pretty meandering path that I took, you know, kind of starting from the beginning. I guess I always had a lot of different interests, wanted to be an athlete, an artist, a scientist, a mathematician, et cetera, all that stuff. But I think in the end, I focused on energy and climate change because. Ultimately, what motivated me was kind of love of nature and de- desire to address this like looming massive problem that we have. And then also the human side, you know, a, a commitment to fighting social injustices. And so I think those were kind of the, uh, the two guiding forces that led me to where I am today. But I, I kind of moved around all over the place and, and worked in different fields and things like that until I finally ended up at MIT.
2: And most people who, you know, feel that love of nature, that urge to do something are drawn kind of more towards activism or politics. What is it about technology that kind of captured your captured your imagination?
1: I guess I felt like technology is kind of inevitable, you know, and I I use a very broad definition of technology is anything that transforms the like raw materials that we have here on this planet and so if you just look around you you know i'm looking out my window at the buildings next door all of the concrete you know the cars all that it's everywhere and so there's there's no way to get a, rid of it and still support you know humans And human well-being on this planet. And so instead, it's really about working with it and and shaping technology towards some beneficial outcomes. So that that's kind of how I drew the connection between nature and technology.
2: So I wanna get into some details of technology innovation, but first I just wanna go straight to one of my biggest questions. I was gonna save it for the end, but we'll just throw it here at the beginning. You have been studying energy technology innovation for a long time now, the way that humans create technologies, develop technologies or don't, the things that can help them do that or or slow them down. How has that work changed the way you see the challenge of climate change? Are Are you more or less optimistic based on what you've learned?
1: I mean, I think I'm an optimist by nature. I think it still remains to be seen if we'll rise to this challenge, but certainly I do feel optimistic. And, I, I, you know, that said, there's just so much more that we need to do. I think we're good at developing devices and new technologies that do cool new things. But are we as good at this kind of society scale change and shifting these basic energy infrastructures and technologies that we rely on toward a clean energy solution, you know, that still remains to be seen. But I'd say overall, I'm optimistic. We also know a lot more, you know, we know a lot more now about the process of technology innovation. And really, addressing climate change is, as I see it, there's no way to get to these endpoints that people talk about. You know, we envision a clean energy future. We kind of know what that might look like, but how do we get from where we are here to that point? It's, it's a process of technology innovation. So the more we can understand it, the more people can get involved, the faster that can go. And there's actually ways for lots of people to be innovators in this sense members of the public through the decisions they make in sort of what car to buy and and how they power their homes and so forth all the way to people in private companies and in scientific and engineering labs. and then of course government policy has a big role to play. So there's so much potential, but we really need to be more deliberate about how we're thinking about technology and that means understanding, what it is, how it evolves, and how we can kind of push it faster toward these beneficial solutions.
2: Right. Well, let's get into that. I think when most people think about technology innovation, they get a sort of vague mental image of an entrepreneur. You know, Steve Jobs goes into his garage, invents something amazing, yada, yada, yada. Apple is the world's richest company. But... We actually know quite a bit about how new technologies are developed and scaled up. And, uh, you know, spoiler alert, it rarely comes down to one brilliant entrepreneur. But we know a lot about how the process works and the kind of stages that technologies go through on their way to mass market. So talk a little bit about how scholars kind of divide up those stages, sort of what is the typical evolution of a technology as it develops?
1: Yeah. So it it really starts as an idea, right? So you have some idea of some functionality that you want. You want to be able to make a lighter laptop, or you want to be able to make a battery that's more energy dense and can allow vehicles to travel further before they have to recharge. So it kind of starts with an idea, and then you're always working within the laws of physics. And then developing the knowledge that you need to be able to do that thing with the raw materials that we have here on Earth. And then, you know, you may demonstrate the process, you may build like a demonstration battery, eventually it enters the market, then all sorts of people start working on it, companies get in on this, and, you know, if there is a market for it, and they start to compete to make the technology better. And that kind of crowdsourced process, that process of many people working on these problems, competing for market share and so forth, that continues to advance the technology. So that's that's kind of the process. And the thing is that, you know, an idea doesn't just come out of nowhere. It's usually built on another idea. Mm -hmm. And so you know, we're always working with what we know and then doing new things. And so that process I just described is not really a linear process. There's no real starting point and ending point. It's right. it's always occurring. And so I think that's something that's important to to understand. It's actually why, you know, when we think about how to nudge these clean energy solutions forward, it is really important, as you said, to get many people working on these problems with different skill sets and so forth. And we can look at some of the famous, you know, now famous examples of some of the technologies in the clean energy space that have improved really substantially. And it's not a story of a few individuals. It's really a story of many people working on these technologies in different capacities, you know, in labs, in Government labs and in universities, um, but also in private companies on manufacturing floors in the fields, learning how to install different, you know, solar panels better, for example. All of this is what led to the improvement that we saw in the case of solar energy. And there are other processes that occurred in parallel with a couple of other clean energy technologies. So that's kind of the process. And it's, I think, encouraging and At least from my side, that should make us feel empowered because, you know, if you're going out there and you're purchasing a clean energy technology, you're creating a market that then drives more innovation. So everybody can contribute. It does also mean that we can't find the silver bullets. We can't find that one really smart person that's going to solve this. We need to kind of get everyone in on this to work toward these solutions.
2: Back in 2018, you wrote a really, really fantastic paper on solar energy and how it is evolved and how it is developed. You know, you tried to really dig into the details and separate and quantify the factors that led to this rapid innovation and rapid development of solar power. You know, because everybody sort of has their favorite story, usually just whatever supports their priors about why solar Solar worked, but you really dug in and got into the numbers. So maybe tell us a little bit about what were the kind of key supporting policies along the way that enabled solar to sort of make these jumps from, you know, lab to demonstration, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, solar is a really interesting case. When I started to look at this, we knew policy was important, but there wasn't really a good sense of which ones were, you know, most important where they occurred and what effect they had. So you mentioned this idea of measurement, and I think that's really important, not only because we want to arrive at these numbers of, you know, measuring how much of a difference a policy made and so forth, but just to understand, like, was research funding from government just a little bit important? You know, did these market creation policies, these policies that stimulated the growth of markets for solar energy, What role did they play? Could we have done without them? And so forth. So that was really the motivation. And what we see in the case of solar is that there are kind of two main categories of policies that we can think about. One is government funding for research and development. So that's kind of the early stage, earlier Mm -hmm. stage technology development that I talked about. That was really important. The U.S. invested a lot in R&D and, you know, that supported a lot of activity in solar energy that really ramped up in the 70s and 80s, but started even before then.
2: Do we know why? I mean, was that was that a response to the to the oil crisis or what was what what prompted the government to get into that in the first place?
1: Yeah. So it was an overall kind of response to the energy crises and, you know, beginning with the oil crisis. So that that was certainly a driving a driving force. There was also just more scientific knowledge about this technology, about photovoltaics, how it worked, and so people were mm-hmm. interested in looking into it. But yeah, the government push, I think, was was related to the oil crisis, and um, yeah, so so there was research and development activity that happened in the U.S. and other places. And you know, pretty early on, some countries, including Japan, began to put incentives in, and, and the US as well, but Japan was a, a leader in putting incentives out there to subsidize the cost of installing solar panels. And, and so that started to grow the markets. And then from there, you know, we had more recently uh, Germany came in and had what was called a feed-in tariff where they guaranteed a certain price for solar electricity and then more recently China has has really supported market growth for solar energy. So there were all these different policies and what we wanted to do was to understand what effect they had on what was this really dramatic cost decline in solar energy, this 99% drop in costs, mm-hmm. you know, so over over a few decades, like where did that come from? What was the role of policy and you know it's it gets pretty complicated, but just to kind of sum it up, we see that the we're actually able to quantify the effects on costs of all these different innovations that happened in research labs. I mean, I should say we're able to quantify them at a kind of an aggregate level. So all mm-hmm. of this work happening in research labs, in, in companies, in on manufacturing floors and, and and so forth. And we see that all of these policies, They played different roles, but both of these kinds of policies, these policies to grow markets and also to support research, were both really critical in driving that cost decline. You know, so I think the example of solar energy is is like a really interesting one. It's one of a few examples that we have now where costs have plummeted, that comes from all of these innovations, these technology improvements. And this really would not have happened without government policy, but it wasn't government that was going in and doing the innovating. It was all of these researchers. It was all of these companies in the private sector. You know, to me, it's an example of why government policy to support innovation and also climate policy and private sector competition and innovation in the private sector they really go hand in hand there was this kind of symbiotic relationship there
2: you know it's sort of easy to look back now at solar power as sort of an example of things going right like at all it, it, <laughs> with the benefit of retrospect it looks like wow we just we aced that but but it's not clear that the people passing those policies at the time were thinking in these big sweeping terms or coordinating with one another, you know, sort of how deliberate or conscious was this versus just kind of like historical contingency happening to work out well? Do you know what I mean? Like how much credit can we collectively take for what looks like an intentional and extremely successful effort to do this?
1: Yeah. You know, when we were in the process and going through it, there was a desire to coordinate across different countries, those that were were interested, you know, and sort of motivated to adopt climate policy and to mitigate climate change. There was definitely a desire to coordinate on market-based mechanisms, carbon prices, et cetera, et cetera. What ended up happening was that that was difficult in some places. And so, people sort of did what they could. In the U.S., we had renewable portfolio standards that were adopted by individual U.S. states. And the reason in many cases was that there wasn't the ability to adopt a federal policy. Right. And so, yeah, it was it was kind of a messy process. And to some extent, governments were casting about in the dark, but there was this hope that solar energy would continue along its cost curve, that it would continue to fall in costs. In the early years, you know, there was data, like if we look back to the 1990s, there was data going back to 1980 showing that costs were falling, like with each doubling of the market size, you got about a 20% reduction in costs. And so the question was, will that continue? And so You know, I think there was a a little bit of intentionality there to try to keep this technology going along its cost curve, basically.
2: Did anyone predict this, though? I mean, even if that sort of cost curve, you know, that kind of doubling, you know, leads to 20% drop, even if that was visible early on, were there a lot of people saying, oh, yeah, that's going to hold, you know, for the next two decades until costs fall 99%? Like, did anyone actually believe that it would be as successful as it turned out to be in the end?
1: Well, you know, there are predictions out there that that did call for that, but a lot of the models didn't predict what we ultimately saw. So a lot of the models were way too conservative. You know, they they didn't predict solar's rapid cost decline. Actually, the simpler models, the ones based on the data that then made projections just based on data, so basically didn't bring experts into the loop. <laughs> they were the ones that, <laughs>
0: that did
1: uh, the best. I mean, they had, there were experts involved with, like, setting up these models, the database models. Right. But, yeah, so, you know, to me, that very much captures the process that I see that unfolded for this technology, which is that, you know, improvements led to more improvements. And we see in many cases in human systems in nature, these kinds of exponential trends. And what happened was different countries kind of came in to support market growth. And then, and then these processes continued, but it was really a messy process. It'd be nice to be able to you know, to do this with some more intentionality going forward.
2: Okay, we're going to take a short break. But when we come back, Jessica and I have talked a fair bit about the success of solar panel technology in innovating and coming down in price. But what else is there? What will be the next solar panel? That's after the break. This is something I, I, I struggle with, and I think a lot of people in this space do, is it's real easy to look at the evolution of solar power. You know, it's such a great example. <laughs> Costs have fallen so fast. It's so successful. We have such a good understanding of kind of its evolution and what prompted it along. It's very tempting for someone like me to sort of take that optimism and say, hey, you guys should be way more optimistic than you, <laughs> than you are right now. Like, this is going to blow up. It's really easy to sort of take that optimism and project it forward and to think like, you know, all these projections we have now for the future cost of, you know, newer technologies like, I don't know, energy storage or hydrogen or, or what have you, we can expect those two plunge in cost too like to, to what extent is that optimism kind of transferable versus there being something idiosyncratic about solar power that kind of turbocharged that process or or can we be confident that we'll be as successful if we're if we really try with these other technologies as well
1: I think in general what we're kind of starting to see is that with the technologies that tend to be produced, manufactured in large plants, large manufacturing plants that are a bit smaller in scale, where you can produce you know, many versions of this technology quickly and that are easier to install in the field, those tend to be the ones that improve more quickly. That's kind of what the data is starting to show. But that doesn't mean that we can't transfer that knowledge to other kinds of technologies that are larger infrastructure projects and so forth. And so I guess the answer to your question is that it's not just solar that has seen this process unfold. We also see this in wind energy. We see this in lithium ion battery technologies as well where we see similar kinds of trends to the ones that I mentioned. And again, there were people working in research, there were people working in companies, all of it was kind of stimulated by this, you know, admittedly, a little bit of a hodgepodge of different policies, but there was an incentive that was created by government policy. So we see this in a couple of other examples as well.
2: Can I can I hold on that point for a minute? Because this is kind of an enduring obsession of mine. It's a point I'm constantly making, and I, I'm never sure how confident to be in it. But something you said there, which is that one of the reasons solar develops so fast is that solar panels are relatively small. So you can manufacture a lot of them. You can manufacture a lot of different kinds. You can iterate quickly, basically, like the generations of the technology are fast because it's small and fast to, to manufacture. And that similar sort of smallness and distributed character, the sort of m- modularity is also true, as you say, of batteries or, or I think lots of kind of software probably fit that description in some way. And that's as opposed to large technologies, you know, sort of the iconic example being a nuclear plant, it's big and slow and thus is probably going to iterate slower and thus is probably going to fall in cost slower. Is it kind of a, a generalizable rule that sort of the smaller and more distributed a technology is? the faster it's likely to develop and get better?
1: Yeah, I mean, we do see some evidence of that. Like, I don't want to go too far and say it's it's like a rule or a law because we only have a couple of examples, really, that, that back that up. But I do think that we're seeing evidence of that now. I'm actually still optimistic, though. And I think the way that we can get larger projects, larger kind of infrastructural projects, and sort of the way we can get that to improve more quickly There's a couple ways to do it. I think standardization is really important. And what I mean by that is that we need to be understanding the parts of these large projects that are holding progress back. And we can do that. And that's actually something we've been focusing on in my lab is to model these larger projects like a technology and understand, you know, where the inefficiencies come in. And then work on bringing those inefficiencies down or making the technologies improve more quickly. And, um, you know, it, it remains to be seen if that's going to be possible. I do think there, there are some challenges that we face in reaching, you know, a decarbonized energy system and addressing climate change. We really have to tackle that head on. This is part of why I try to use this really broad definition of technology, because I want to bring all of those factors into what we're trying to be deliberate about. Mm -hmm. These inefficiencies crop up in different ways. We've looked at nuclear fission and, you know, what we see is that Essentially, a lot of the, the rising costs, we've seen rising costs in, in nuclear power plant construction in the U.S. over time. A lot of that came from, you know, these delays and in, in building the plants and other inefficiencies where conditions were encountered in the field that weren't anticipated and so forth. So the more we can study that process, the more we can treat the whole thing as a technology and then potentially address these inefficiencies. And there may be a couple of the really difficult decarbonization challenges, the innovation challenges that are really going to require that. And they may end up being more expensive to address. That's not necessarily going to be a deal breaker, but we should certainly try to bring those costs down.
2: Probably the example that's on everybody's mind right now is carbon capture and and sequestration. If you pay attention to the models, scientists say even, you know, even if we do great on all these other technologies, better than we have any right to believe we will, we're still going to in order to return to a safe sort of atmospheric concentration of greenhouse gases, we're still going to have to capture a bunch of carbon out of the atmosphere and, and bury it. You know, I, I know a lot of people are extremely skeptical about that technology with, I think, good reasons so far. If you look out at the giant projects thus far, they're giant and they face all the problems that giant projects face, which is, you know, financing and and cost overruns. So how, like, for something like carbon capture and sequestration, which seems so big, so unwieldy, like how do you start thinking systematically about innovation in something like that.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's a great example and it's a great example of where I'm worried about cost overruns. It's also a technology that's really pretty new and we don't have a lot of data and what we've learned from past technologies is that you know, we really want to get the data. We want to make our forecasts and and understand what's possible not only relying on experts but also on the data, you know, we we saw this in the case of, of solar energy, where the data really gave us the most reliable forecast.
2: Keep the experts out and just look <laughs> at the data.
1: Yeah, no, no. I mean, you want the experts in there. But, you know, the fundamental issue, I think, is that, like, when you're an expert working on a technology, you're usually thinking about yourself and what you can do and what the people close to you can do. But, what we see with these processes of technology innovation is that they're really much larger than that. Mm. And so when you have all these people working on a technology, in the case of solar energy, costs came down really quickly because lots of new ideas came in. In the case of some of these large infrastructure projects, you know, it can go in the other direction where when you're trying to install something, things aren't exactly as you predicted And so, you know, you end up having a delay in one part of your process. And then, you know, it's very costly to kind of sit around and wait for that issue to be resolved. So anyway, coming back to carbon capture and storage, and and I should say that it's something that we should keep in our portfolio of investments. You know, it's one Mm -hmm. potential part of the solution that we should keep working on, but we shouldn't put all of our eggs in that basket. Certainly not. But I think the way to go about it is to really be careful about collecting data, doing some demonstration projects, bringing all of these soft costs. So the non-hardware costs into Mm -hmm. the way that we're estimating what the cost of this construction project will be and, you know, just being much more deliberate about that. So tracking progress, trying to make it standardized if we can make it as standardized as possible, then it becomes a little bit more like a manufactured technology that's built in a manufacturing plant.
2: I think one of the things people uh, want to know, <laughs> well, let's just say one of the sort of perpetual arguments in the clean energy space, and this I'm sure you're familiar with this argument that's been going on for decades, which is the sort of argument over how ready we are, technologically speaking, sort of of, of the technologies we need to decarbonize, how many are ready because you know there used to be this endless argument where some people would say we have what we need. What we need to do is deploy it at scale as rapidly as possible. That should be the the main ultimate focus. Then you had this other group of people saying, "No, we don't have what we need. We need our overwhelming focus should be on innovation and getting new technologies ready of the technologies we're going to need in the end to reach net zero emissions." how many of them have truly reached this mass market scale and sort of how many are in the middle somewhere and how many are at the early stages like try to give us a sense if you can of sort of like the distribution of where we are on these sort of innovation curves and 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 how close we are to ready i guess <laughs> to yeah. to decarbonize yeah
1: i mean i think there's a lot that we can do immediately you know so a lot of the technologies are at a point where they can be affordable you know they're affordable to to many people and their markets are growing and they can really help drive emissions down pretty pretty rapidly and pretty substantially so you know some of the key technologies that we can lean on include energy efficiency. Now there are the challenges to, to really make it widely adopted. So basically the Mm -hmm. way I like to say it is to make it easier to opt in than to opt out of, Mm -hmm. you know, an energy efficient retrofit of your home, for example, and also for companies. So that's, that's one, I mean, that's really ready to go. There's so much we can do. Solar energy, wind energy, costs have been falling. Battery technologies, lithium ion battery technologies have made electric vehicles accessible to a lot of people. And in some markets, like certain Asian markets, you can get electric cars that are like $10,000. They aren't as Mm -hmm. prevalent in the US, but a lot of this is supported by this improvement we've seen in recent decades in lithium ion battery technologies. And in that case, the technologies costs have come down by 97% since since the early 1990s. So those are some of the technologies that can get us toward decarbonizing electricity and also beginning to decarbonize transportation through the adoption of electric vehicles. But there's a lot more that, that needs to be done. I mean, I say a lot, but it's actually kind of a handful of, of different energy services that we need to address. This is,
2: this is important. Convey because I think it's real easy for people who, without a good understanding of this space to think that because the goal is so vast, you know we're sort of trying to replace all of industrial civilization <laughs> with with substitutes on the fly. It's easy to sort of think in the face of that, oh, there's like a million things, right? There's a million technologies that we don't that we don't have yet. There's a million things we need to do, but actually, like, to get to sort of 80, 90, 95% decarbonized, there's a manageable and finite set of technologies that we can sort of wrap our head around and see all at once and go to see where they are. So yeah, tell us sort of like technologies that aren't yet at the sort of scale and readiness of solar and like How close are they?
0: Yeah,
1: sure. Um, Starting with electricity, you know, we can lean quite a bit on solar and wind energy. There are a lot of emerging ways to deal with the fact that, you know, sometimes you have more, sometimes you have less sun and wind throughout the day. There's kind of three ways, major ways that you can address that. You can install physical storage technologies. It could be batteries. It could be other kinds of ways of storing electricity and some of those like lithium ion battery technologies are already being installed for that for that purpose so there are some options there and then there are some areas like in in shipping there's a need to find alternative shipping fuels jet fuels for powering airplanes heavy trucks you know the big trucks uh, will they be able to be electrified it could be challenging so we may, may need another solution there and then if we get into you know, heating, that can be electrified. Uh, there are heat pumps that are available today. And then when we get into industry, many industrial energy services can use electricity. Some, it's more difficult. So, mm-hmm. so that when we look at steel production, cement production, that's more difficult. So so those are kind of from the perspective of services. And then I'm going to boil it down to some technologies that I think could be really important to to work on. So, really, if we try to boil this down to a couple of a small number of technologies that that are a little bit further from you know being adopted at scale, I would say it's it's some kind of carbon free fuel that can be used for certain industrial processes uh, for for shipping for jet fuel for trucking. And in some cases, it could be hydrogen. Um, In others, that's not looking so good, but there are other options that we can look at. It's not yet time to completely rule out biofuels either for some of these niche applications or these currently difficult to decarbonize applications. But we need some kind of carbon-free fuel And so that's a real priority. I would say demand management is a a priority, basically getting better at shifting demands around in time. And that includes kind of working with the transportation sector and with electricity. And then I would say, you know, investing in carbon capture and storage is a good idea for some of the very difficult to decarbonize, like currently very difficult to decarbonize sectors, that may be something that we need to lean on. So I guess boiling it down, those are some of the key priority areas that that still need a bit more work.
2: You know, given that sort of survey of, of technologies, the ready ones, the ones that are on their way to ready, the ones that are earlier, what is one kind of dark horse clean energy technology that you think will be bigger than people are currently expecting play a bigger role. And conversely, what is one energy technology that's sort of currently sexy and drawing a lot of attention that you think is overrated and won't play as big a role as we think now?
1: Yeah. So maybe I'll start with the second question. You know, what is a little bit overrated? I would say that there's a tendency to talk about, you know, smart home systems, smart energy systems and sort of smart hmm. cities overall. And I'm not saying that smart cities are bad. I think they're a great idea, but I I'd like to say that we we only need to be like just smart enough. We shouldn't go, <laughs> you know, we shouldn't kind of go go too far because when people say they want the smart city, you know, they're often envisioning, you know, devices, vehicles, households, everything's connected and can communicate. Right with other devices. And that, of course, also has energy costs. There are other concerns, there are privacy considerations that we have to take into account. So to give a concrete example, like you want to make sure that when people plug in their cars to charge them, they're not overwhelming the power grid. Mm. You could say, well, let's have all of these cars talking to each other and sort of negotiating behind the scenes, right? Over the internet, they're negotiating, they're figuring it out. And I actually don't think that's, necessary, we can actually predict pretty well. And we've been working on this in my lab. We can see when people naturally come home, how they're moving around in space, when they would naturally charge. You know, with those predictions, you can actually have a a somewhat smart device. So it's pre-programmed. The devices aren't necessarily talking to each other, but there are certain rules that it uses to decide when to charge. So that's like one example. So I, I think Let's not kind of get ahead of our, our skis here and sort of get ahead of ourselves.
2: So you think we can get a lot of the, a lot of the energy benefits with just a little bit of intelligence, let's just say.
1: Yeah. And, and I just think intelligence in this context isn't free. Right. Um, right. You know, I think we get really excited about all these cool things that smart systems can do. And, and I understand that excitement. But I just think I, yeah.
2: I get a lot of press releases uh, with the word smart in the. <laughs> sure. subject line. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But then an area that I I really want to take another look at is actually demand management and not the traditional kind. So when I say demand management, what it means is you're basically managing people's demands for energy. You're maybe incentivizing them, paying them to stop consuming at certain times. And that's something that people have looked at for a long time. Yeah. What we're starting to see as the shape of what this decarbonized system could be as that takes shape is that I think there's a need to look back at demand management and see are there ways to actually make bigger shifts, maybe more infrequent shifts in, for example, electricity demand, that could really help with integrating solar and wind energy. And then, you know, even in transportation, understanding how people move around in vehicles and sort of understanding when they need certain kinds of vehicles and incentivizing behaviors that would encourage them to to basically right-size their cars providing an opportunity to use shared vehicles and so forth. And that's something that could really benefit from demand management as well.
2: I have a friend whose grand theory is that clean energy people in general are sort of overestimating the amount of storage we'll end up needing and using and underestimating the amount of demand management we'll end up needing and using. And their and their whole point is just that demand management is, is considerably... Cheaper. I mean, it's 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 almost free if you if you do it right.
1: Yeah, I mean, anytime you can avoid building some physical piece of hardware right. and do something instead with with changing behaviors, you can make the system more efficient overall. You know, so yeah, so so I basically I, I agree that where we can avoid building new infrastructure, new hardware, and instead give people incentives and information to shift their behaviors a bit, that's definitely the way to go. So I, I see a lot a lot of new opportunities in that area and it's it's something that I think we really need to be focusing on.
2: We're going to take one more short break, but when we come back, Jessica and I talk more about some of the political factors that can, well, let's just say, complicate innovation policy. Plus we talk about one kind of pollution that's all around us and frankly, no one's talking enough about. That's after the break.
0: This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Choiceology is a show all about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Each episode shares the latest research in behavioral science, and dives into themes like, can we learn to make smarter decisions? And the power of do-overs. The show is hosted by Katie Milkman. She's an award-winning behavioral scientist, professor at the Wharton School, and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. In each episode, Katie talks to authors, historians, athletes, Nobel laureates, and everyday people about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones to avoid costly mistakes. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast, or find it wherever you listen. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech.
2: One aspect of innovation that you emphasize a lot is around equity and um sort of climate justice or environmental justice has really been a big thing in uh, in the climate world lately it's really kind of come to the forefront of the conversation i think it's really risen up the agenda of climate groups and democratic politicians you know a lot of people can sort of intuitively understand what it means for some policies to take equity into account like if you're doing big investments you know you channel some investments to frontline communities or if you're doing regulations. You take care to make sure that frontline communities don't get stuck with the dirty facilities, et cetera. I don't think it's quite as intuitive to people how equity should inform innovation. Innovation kind of seems like something people are doing off in labs somewhere, kind of unconnected to the political realities of equity, but you think that they are, are intimately related. So explain a little bit how you can approach innovation policy with, with equity in mind.
1: You know, how I how I think about this is that innovation that focuses on equity is innovation that focuses on solutions that are accessible to all and not just the wealthy. Uh, And I think that that's really important. There are a number of ways in which we can and we really should shift our focus to, to kind of really bring this to the forefront. So I can give you a concrete example, which is in the realm of electric vehicles, If policies are encouraging the adoption of of electric vehicles, but not encouraging lower cost electric vehicles to be made available, you know, so depending on how you write the policy, you're incentivizing companies to innovate toward a $70,000, you know, Tesla Model S versus a $10,000 electric vehicle that is available in some markets in Asia. And depending on how you set up your, your policy, if you are not taking that into account, innovation is not necessarily going to be equitable. There's a big push right now uh, by the government to think about where to put charging stations. I mean, really, it's about incentivizing private companies to develop business models and you know, install charging stations and so forth. But again, how those programs are set up, how those policies are set up, are going to lead to different kinds of locations for charging stations. If you've set it up so that you're driving down the cost and you're encouraging business model innovation to make it easier to install chargers at home, that's only going to capture a certain segment of the population. A lot of people living in urban areas that aren't as wealthy may not have off-street parking. And so You need to set up those programs so that you innovate towards solutions that would put chargers on public streets or in public parking lots. So those are just two specific examples. But at all of these levels where government comes in and kind of nudges forward these innovation processes, I think it's important and and really imperative to, to think about equity. It also goes hand in hand with addressing climate change, because at the end of the day, it's really important to have this society-wide shift and these climate solutions need to be available to, to everyone.
2: So do you think the actual people involved in developing the technologies themselves and doing the sort of technical work, do you think they need to have equity in mind? Or is this just something that kind of the policymakers should add on later?
1: Yeah, I mean, it really depends on the technology we're talking about. But I don't think the policymakers should add it on later. I think the policy incentives need to be there so that people are working on, you know, in the case of manufacturing cars, they're working on the models that have the smaller battery capacities that are going to cost $10,000, you know, rather than the much more expensive ones. That also can lead to technology improvement. You know, if you're if right. you're making lots of cars, you're selling them, those technologies are going to improve. You may not have as high a margin, but that's where policy comes in and says, okay, for the greatest incentives to stimulate this market, we're actually going to focus on the lower cost electric vehicles. And, you know, sometimes it's really important for the engineers working on developing the technologies to have these considerations in mind. If I'm if I'm looking at developing a charging scheme, let's say, for electric vehicles, and I'm kind of working out the math and figuring out where I can put these stations so they won't overwhelm the grid and all of that, if I don't have in mind the fact that if I put it you know, on this public street or in all these all these private parking spots, if I don't have in mind that that has a really big impact on who will be able to adopt them, I might just go for whichever one it seems easiest for getting the most cars on the road. But yeah, it's it's ultimately not the path to a society-wide climate solution. So I don't know if that, does that make sense? I, I, it, it
2: does. I mean, I think you're just, you know, reemphasizing the point that innovation doesn't take place in a vacuum. It takes place in a certain system, a certain set of incentives. You know, it's not just sort of someone sitting in a chair thinking somewhere, they're responding to yeah. policy and to society as it's, as it's constructed. The Republican Party these days has, has I think, decided that climate denialism has run its course and is no longer politically advantageous. And so they're trying to shift to some sort of modified acceptance and finding their own policy way into this. And And what they're talking about a lot is innovation. They say the word innovation a lot, but I think to someone who, who sort of fashions themselves an economic conservative, the way they think of innovation is you spend a bunch of money on r and d basically you spend a bunch of money on science and what people are doing in labs and maybe help them with a demonstration project or two but beyond that you let the market take over right going beyond that to to do these market policies or these other policies that sort of dictate later stage innovation you're getting into soviet style central planning uh you know which is always going to be a disaster et cetera et cetera so Politically, there's this idea that innovation is sort of confined to early stage. What is the relationship of kind of the government to the private sector in that kind of post-demonstration project phase of innovation, where you're talking about big market forces? Like, you don't want to, obviously, pick winners It's the way the Republicans put it. How do you sort of address the kind of economic conservative concern that we should get out of the way once there's markets involved?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think getting out of the way once a technology has been demonstrated and kind of just giving it to the market is is a recipe for failure because often, you know, in, in the clean energy space, and we, we saw this in solar energy, wind energy, lithium ion battery technologies, like once we were able to build these technologies, they still weren't Quite cost competitive. You needed those early subsidies, and those subsidies can take on different forms. I mean, they could be a price on carbon, they could be, you know, market-wide, or they could be technology specific in each case. Right. You know, and depending on where you are in the world, a different option might be more viable and better. But but you need those incentives so that the markets for these technologies can grow. Otherwise, you've made this investment in research and development, and it's not going to go anywhere. And that's, you know, that's really not a good use of of taxpayers' dollars. And so I just can't say enough how critical it is to invest in research, development, demonstration, but also in deployment and incentives to grow markets. So we saw this for solar energy. We saw that 60% of the cost decline in solar panels came from Policies around the world to grow markets for solar energy. And we wouldn't be in the place where we are today with solar energy, with wind energy, uh, without these policies to incentivize the growth in markets.
2: Maybe one of the reasons that people aren't as excited about this stuff as they ought to be. Of course, I think people ought to be excited about this. But (laughs) one of the reasons they're not excited is I think a lot of people sort of think of clean energy as just, you know, like I plug my toaster in and toast a piece of bread. If I do it with fossil fuel energy, you know, and then I switch and I'm doing it with solar energy, to me it's the same. It's the same toaster. It's the same bread. Like it's great on some abstract level that I'm polluting less, but like I'm not that excited. It's still the same toaster. You know, I, I go get in my car. I I turn the key. I drive to work. The car is using a different fuel, but like what do I care? It's just it's still my car. Still my same life. So I think people maybe think of this as a this sort of giant effort that we're forced to make because of these pollution concerns and climate concerns, but that is just like a little bit like taking our medicine. And I think that's that's wrong. I think you and I both think that's wrong. <laughs> I actually think that once these clean energy technologies are all sort of scaled and in our day-to-day lives, they're going to improve lives in concrete ways. So maybe just like just as a way of taking us out just paint a little picture of like what is a daily life going to look like when all these things are finally in place and ubiquitous.
1: I think it's a great question, um, and I think yeah, it's, it's so important to have that view of of the endpoint. You know, what are we aiming for? Right. And um, I think the way I think about it is in a couple of ways. I mean, first of all, the air is going to be cleaner. Mm-hmm. There's going to be less noise pollution.
2: You know, I think that's getting, such a yeah. uh, sorry to interrupt I think that's such an underrated this is my dark horse yeah. candidate. I think it's just like you don't notice your refrigerator running until your refrigerator stops, you know? Like right. it, it, I don't think people appreciate the din of day-to-day life in a in a city or urbanized area just from yeah. cars and trucks and buses and garbage trucks and it's anything else, like when that is all quiet and it's all using electric motors, I really think that's gonna be transformative. I think people are underestimating yeah. how, how big of a deal that's gonna be.
1: Yeah, I think people will breathe a you know a sigh of relief. And especially in places where the noise pollution is is the worst, you know, and that's often in underserved in sort of more disadvantaged communities. And so, but but everywhere, you know, I think we'll all appreciate that.
2: I remember talking to a city planner in Barcelona who blew my mind. He told me that. In terms of health impacts, the noise pollution was producing the same level of health impacts as the air pollution. And I was like, whoa, how, what? And he's like, it's like, uh, it's stress and heart disease. You know, like Mm -hmm. heart disease is the number one killer and noise is stress. And so like the noise is killing as many people as the air. Anyway, I'll I'll let noise pollution go now, but I really think it's a big deal.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I I, I really couldn't agree more. And um. You know, I mean, something like taking the subway or all of our daily activities. You know, if you just imagine that the noise pollution is much less, you're breathing much cleaner air. I think all of this is going to give us much more energy and kind of an overall better quality of life. You know, if we think about some of the other changes that could happen, if you have an energy efficient home you know, you're not only going to save money, but it's probably going to be more comfortable as well. If we look out and we see that the Amazon truck is, is, you know, arriving and it's an electric car, that's going to make us feel good, I think. Also, I think our public spaces will be more intentional. Mm. It's tricky to think about planning for this you know, highly electrified future, right, where we're using electric heaters, we're using electric cars, and, and lots of energy services are electrified, like that is going to require some amount of planning in the process, if we can create better bike routes, so that you Mm. can bike to work without risking your life, that would be, that would be nice. And, you know, and just generally more enjoyable outdoor spaces, and just the knowledge that, We've made this transition, you know, I mean, it's not it's not to say that all problems are going to go away. Probably the next set of issues is going to be about, you know, getting better at recycling and Mm. and kind of moving toward what what people call. It's kind of a buzzword, but the circular economy, it's going to be a constant process of managing and shaping the technology that we have. But I think we can really get a handle on it and it's going to be a much more pleasant place to to live. It's kind of a world where also our power grid is necessarily going to have to be more reliable because we're mm. going to be relying on electricity for a lot, lot of different services. And so, you know, for those people that experience power outages, which are quite common around the country and around the world, certainly, you know, having a more reliable electric power grid. So, I mean, it's, it's I think from the perspective of the, the human experience, it's going to be a much better one, not only because of the knowledge that we've addressed this really important, you know, existential threat, mm-hmm. but also just because of a, it, it'll lead to a better quality of life. Uh, and I mean, there's one thing you mentioned, which is this idea that people feel like it's about sacrifice. Dealing right. with climate change is a sacrifice. Instead, I like to think of it as you know this whole process of evolving technologies and innovation is going to happen no matter what and with a few like policy nudges, a few government nudges, it can be shaped in a direction that leads to a low carbon future that's going to be more enjoyable and is going to be protective of the planet and and so forth. And and that isn't going to be it's not that hard to I mean there are challenges. I don't want to say it's super mm-hmm. easy, but I think we can do it and I think it's it's something that wouldn't feel painful. In fact, it would add to our quality of life.
2: All right. Well, here's to uh, e-biking around in, in fresh <laughs> air sometime uh, in the near future. Thanks so much for coming on, Jessica. It's been a pleasure.
1: Yeah, this has been great. Thank you so much, David.
0: This week's episode of Vox Conversations was produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drastaska. Paul Monsey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Liz Kelly Nelson is our executive producer and editorial director of Vox Podcast. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement. We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests, guest hosts, or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review, and come back next week for a brand new episode.
1: More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier.